And church, listen, we need, as I said before, we need to get dead serious about how we pray for our family, how we pray for our friends, how we pray for our coworkers. I understand that every mom and dad, every grandparent wants their children and their grandchildren to be saved. I understand you want your neighbors to be saved. I understand that you want your coworkers to be saved. Well, what we need to stop, stop doing, church, is placing and forcing upon them a false conversion because there is no fruit and pray for their repentance and salvation and faith in Jesus Christ alone. This is the Divine Truth Podcast, a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition live from the pulpit of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that the Word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed. Chapter 3, we've reached a threshold. We're halfway through. And uh, the amazing part about it is, is we're halfway through and we're in this book less than a year. We won't be in this book a year until January, but we're halfway through at this point this morning. So that is unprecedented. Uh, I gave myself seven years to go through this, these four chapters. We might do it in five. But uh, Philippians chapter 3, and after you have found that, I have respect for God's word. If you would please stand as we read our text, Philippians chapter number 3, beginning in verse number 1. This is the word of God. Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you to me is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of of the conscience. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Father, as we study your word this morning, give us understanding and give us clarity of mind, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The good news of forgiveness and eternal life is really at the heart of the New Testament. The Gospels record the ministry of Jesus Christ who according to Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Acts records the the spread of the Gospel through the Roman world. The epistles unfold the Gospels' rich theological significance and also exhorts believers to the practical holiness that the gospel demands. The book of Revelation records the ultimate triumph of the gospel and the consummation of human history. But folks, what we need to understand this morning is that in the gospel, in the word of God, along with the presentation of the gospel, is closely related a critical theme that should be a critical concern of every person that calls themselves a child of God. Because in the New Testament, 
Not only is the word of God concerned about the salvation, about the gospel, but in the New Testament, the word of God, Jesus and the apostles are also, also concerned that people are deceived about the genuineness of their own salvation. And believers in the word of God, in the New Testament particularly, are constantly told and, and encouraged to examine themselves to make sure that they are genuine Christians. One of the most sobering passages for me to read and to have ever preached on. There are a lot of sobering passages, but one of the most sobering passages that I've ever preached on is Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21, where Jesus Christ himself says, Not everyone, did you get that church? Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name have we cast out devils? And in your name done many wonderful works? And here's a sobering part, church. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Not I knew you one time and now I don't. I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Christ also gave this sobering warning in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 3. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell among stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up and they were, they were scorched, and because they had no, what? Root, they withered away. If there is no root, there is no fruit. And because they had no root, they withered away and died. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundred, some sixty, and some thirtyfold. And Jesus ends it with this, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And as Jesus Christ explains to his disciples the meaning of that parable in verses 18 to 24, the 23 rather, the point that Christ was making, church, is unmistakable. That all those people that are truly born from above, will have fruit in their life. If there is no fruit in their life, there is no salvation. I've gotten myself into a lot of trouble over the years. I know you guys can't imagine that. But I've gotten myself into a lot of trouble over the years. I was standing in a, in a, in a Baptist convention one time preaching a sermon on lordship salvation. Uh-oh. And to my chagrin, most of the pastors in that convention did not agree with what the Bible says on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In fact, I had some pastors come to me and say that repentance, young man, because I was much younger then, I didn't have gray. So repentance, young man, has nothing to do with salvation. But the Word of God says, repent. Or what? Perish. The word of God says, receive Jesus Christ as Lord, as master, and you will be saved. 
If there is no fruit in the life of a person, church, there is no reason for salvation to believe that they have salvation. And this is the repeated message in the Word of God. We need to get serious, church, about how we pray for people and stop forcing upon people a false profession when there really is no true conversion because there is no fruit. Simon Magus was a probably a wonderful, most classic example of this, of a, of a false believer. In Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9, the Word of God says, And there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was a great one. To whom they have, they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. And get verse 13. And Simon himself believed also. And the front pew says, Amen. Hallelujah. This, this false deity, this man that set himself up as God, this sorcerer, this Satan worshiper, got saved. Not only did he get saved, but what else does the text says? And when he was what, church? Hallelujah. He got saved. He got baptized. Then what's the text going to say? And he did what? Continued with Philip. Hallelujah. He got saved. He identified with Jesus Christ in baptism. And he must be saved because he came to the men's meeting. By all outward indications, right church? Simon was a believer. He made a profession of faith. He publicly identified with Christ in baptism. He even said the right thing, said the right words, did everything for a while that was right, and even continued with Philip. And that's why the Bible says that even Simon himself also believed and was baptized and continued with Philip. But listen, church, not everything was as it seemed. Because look at verse 14. Now when the apostles were to read Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John whom, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he had, was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And get this, lay their hands on them, and, that, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon... Here's where it all goes downhill, church. And when Simon saw... That through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given. He did what? He offered them money. Why? Let me pay you for the same power. Because Simon knew his power was fake. He saw that he saw a real miracle in what the apostles did. And so what did Simon do? Let me give you some money that you may give me the same ability. 
saying, give me also this power that on whomever I lay hands, I may receive the Holy Ghost. And Peter said unto him, thy money, what? Perish with thee. Because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this manner, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness, and pray God that if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And what was Simon's reaction? Pray for me. Pray for me, right? Why? Pray for my repentance, Peter. I want to make a true profession, Peter. I want to truly be a Christian, Peter. Pray for me. Was that Simon's request? No. Pray for me that none of these things you have spoken will happen to me. Because even, even Peter's, even Simon's request to Peter to pray for him, church, does not reveal a repentant heart. He was not asking for forgiveness because if he had been asking for forgiveness or wanting forgiveness, he would have asked for it. He was merely asking for relief from the temporal consequences of his sin. And listen, church, there's a great gulf difference in someone's prayer for repentance and faith and trusting Jesus Christ as Lord than it is for a prayer wanting relief from whatever they're going through in life. There's a big difference between embracing and submitting to Jesus as Lord and wanting fire insurance. Simon did not want submission to the Lordship of Christ. He wanted relief from the consequences of his request to pay for the gift of God. In fact, the early church names this Simon as the founder of what later became known as, known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the religion that says that God can only be known by having a higher knowledge. And in fact, the Gnosticism was uh, deemed by the early church father Irenaeus as heretical. And in fact, church history also records for us that this Simon set himself up as in blasphem, blasphemy as God. But everything looked right, didn't it? Everything looked right. Everything that Simon said up to that point seemed right. He prayed. He made a profession of faith. He was baptized. He said all the right things. He continued with Philip and the apostles. But eventually his true colors came out. And church, listen, we need, as I said before, we need to get dead serious about how we pray for our family, how we pray for our friends, how we pray for our coworkers. I understand that every mom and dad, every grandparent wants their children and their grandchildren to be saved. I understand you want your neighbors to be saved. I understand that you want your coworkers to be saved. Well, what we need to stop, stop doing, church, is placing and forcing upon them a false conversion because there is no fruit and pray for their repentance and salvation and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Because Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Many people 
I'm afraid, church, rest their hope for salvation in a past event. But Scripture nowhere, church, listen to me very clearly. Scripture nowhere instructs us to look back at a past conversion experience as a proof of salvation. How many people have you gone to and said, are you, are you a Christian? Yes, I, re- I prayed a prayer. How many people over the years have I spoken to about their family members or their friends? And I said, are they a Christian? Yeah, I know they're saved because I remember when they prayed a prayer. Nowhere, church, are we told to look back to a post experience as proof of salvation. That would be the first non-proof of saving faith. And the second non-proof of salvation is a superficially moral life. Charles, uh, uh, not Charles Spurgeon, he's on my brain this morning. I've been reading after him this week. He's on my brain this morning. R.C. Sproul said one time that the worst doctrine, one of the worst doctrines that has been pers- uh, perpetrated upon the Christian church is the doctrine of morality. Because people believe because they live a moral life, they're okay. But nowhere in Scripture, church, are we told to look back at morality as a proof of salvation. Because not all those people that live outwardly moral lives are truly saved. Not everybody that speaks the name Jesus, not everybody that speaks the name God is truly saved. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23 as he condemned the Pharisees beginning in verse 27, he says, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, hypocrites. For ye are like unto whitewashed sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanliness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Listen, church, do Christians live moral lives? Yes, they do. But is morality a proof of salvation? No, it's not. No, it is not. Jesus said of the Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You appear righteous on the outside, but inside, it's a different story. Because listen, church, unsaved people may behave themselves according to a certain moral standard for any number of reasons. But one of the main reasons why unsaved people will act morally, one of the number one reasons is for self. Even an unsaved person's Philanthropy is wicked before God because it's based upon what the person that I show philanthropy did can do to me, can do for me. And so many people believe that living a moral life alone is proof of salvation. External church, external morality saves no one. External morality saves no one. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all as an unclean thing and all of our righteousness are as what? Filthy rags. Filthy rags. And Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And so that's what the scripture says just in a brief synopsis of what true saving faith looks like. 
what it doesn't look like. And I want you to walk away from here this morning, folks, and I want you not to be upset with me because you would be really upset with God. But I want you to walk away from here this morning by understanding, folks, just like we all have to do, the true conversion to Jesus Christ, true salvation, has nothing to do with the prayer, has nothing to do with baptism, has nothing to do with church membership, has nothing to do with morality. I am, and you know me well, I am 100% a lordship salvation preacher from start to finish. If you do not, if someone does not submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ in their life, they are not a Christian. There must be submission. You don't make him Lord. He is Lord, but you must submit to that lordship of Jesus Christ, which is not a work, church, but is a natural overflow of true faith. You don't submit to the Lordship of Christ to be saved. You submit to the Lordship of Christ because you are saved. And in this passage, these first three verses, this is a wonderful chapter. And in these first three verses, Paul lays out for us in crystal clear evidence what are the distinctive marks of a true believer. What are the distinctive marks of a true believer? Number one. The very first distinctive mark of a true believer that Paul finds here in verse 1 is a believer finds pleasure in Christ. He finds pleasure in Christ. For the believer, we possess a joy that the world knows nothing about, don't we? Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, quote, God's people are meant to be people who are always rejoicing in the Lord. And one of the first distinctive marks, church, of a genuine believer is that they find pleasure in Christ. And I use the word pleasure because joy doesn't begin with P. So work with me here. The first distinctive mark of a genuine believer is they find pleasure in Christ. Look at verse 1 where Paul says this, Finally, stop right there. Finally is an important word. Loipos in the Greek, and it literally means furthermore. So then. Now then. Listen, Paul does not do what the typical Bonnie Baptist pastor does when he says finally, and he really doesn't mean he's wrapping up anything. Never believe a Baptist pastor when he says, and finally. What I mean when I say finally is what Paul meant when he said finally, and that is, well, furthermore. So instead of saying finally, whenever I say loipos, you'll know that I just mean furthermore. So then, this is not a word of finality because Paul's only halfway done. But it is a word that serves church as a transition statement. Paul is saying, in addition to what I have told, previously told you, I want you to do this. Verse 1 again. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. That's your question this morning, church. Are you rejoicing in the Lord today? I want you to notice a couple of things about the word rejoice. First of all, the word rejoice is a present tense. Which means that the Philippian believers, and by extension, us, we are to always be, as a habit of life, we are to always be rejoicing in the Lord. 
But not only is the word rejoice in the present tense, but it's also in the active voice, which means that the Christian must take action in rejoicing. As Christians, as believers, church, we have this obligation, and that is to direct our minds and direct our hearts to rejoice in the Lord. We are the only ones that can fulfill this. Listen, church, God is not going to jump in and make us people that are rejoicing independent of us making the choice to do so. Rejoicing, church, is a choice. But by, but by the same token, despair is also a choice. You make the choice every day of your life whether I'm going to live in joy or whether I'm going to live in despair. You say, Pastor, you don't understand what's going on in my life. And yet you're right. I don't understand what's going on in your life. I may not even know what's going on in your life, just like you don't know what's going on in mine. But listen, church, the Bible doesn't tell us to rejoice in our circumstances, does it? The Bible doesn't even tell us to rejoice in spite of our circumstances. The Bible tells us to rejoice what? In the Lord. It's all a matter of where we put our minds focus. If we want to spend our life focusing on things that are wrong in our life, it will cause massive despair. But if we want to take our focus and our minds off of that and put it on the Lord, that's where the joy comes from. And only you can do that. I wish God would jump in. I wish that the Greek words for rejoice, Cairo. I wish it was in the passive voice, which means God does it. I'm just, I just sit there and say, have at it, God, make me joyous. But that's not the way it is. You have to make that choice. And that choice will be made based upon your focus in life. Because I want you to understand also that the word rejoice is not only in the present tense, it's not only in the active voice, but it's in the imperative mood, church, which is the mood of command. You are not given the option of rejoicing. You and I are commanded to rejoice in the Lord. Not only is rejoicing a choice, it's a command. And rejoicing is the responsibility of every believer to fulfill. And God does not command us to do those things that he does not also make possible. And because rejoicing is an imperative, it is a command for us, church, to obey in the face of challenging circumstances. <laughs> rejoicing is an act of the will, folks, listen, in choosing to obey God. You know why I fear that so many Christians have despair? I don't know about you, but I know in my own life, I'm speaking personally here, you know why so many Christians I fear may have such a hard time rejoicing in the Lord because of their circumstances of their life, because they're thinking in the back of their minds, and, the, and, and it may be true. They're thinking in the back of their minds, I put myself here, right? I put myself here. I wonder if God will get me out of it. Folks, listen, but if we will live rejoicing in the Lord with our mind and our hearts and our life fixed on the Lord and obeying the Lord, folks, listen to me. Who is responsible for the circumstances? Who is responsible for the outcome? God is. If I go off on my own and I live my own way, then I'm responsible. 
But if I am following the path of Scripture, I am following the path of Christ, I am obeying Christ and doing what His Word says, and I'm walking in integrity, God is responsible for the consequences. And I can therefore truly rejoice in the Lord because He's responsible. He's responsible. Remember, when Paul either wrote or dictated this letter, Paul himself was where? In jail, in prison, chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. And what Paul does in this chapter is set forth the groundwork for our joy. And, that it, and, and the fact is that it is joy is part of God's imputed righteousness to us. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, church, for all intent and purposes, provides the ground of faith's obedient joy, no matter what we're going through in life. Paul connects joy with a relationship with the Lord. Look what he says again in verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord. That's a, re that's a relational answer or quite a statement. That's a statement based upon my relationship with Christ. The joy for which Paul speaks is not that of happiness which is based on happenstance. Because the fact is, church, joy persists in my life. In the, if I truly have joy in the Lord, if you truly have joy in the Lord, joy persists in the face of weakness. Joy in the Lord persists in the face of pain. Joy in the Lord persists in the face of suffering. Joy in the Lord persists even in the face of death. The joy of the Lord persists even when you don't have the answers of what you're going to do. But let me tell you something, church. Our God today is bigger than any challenge you've got. Our God today is bigger than any challenge you've got in life. And not only is our God bigger than any challenge that you and I have in life, but our God has already got the solution. Our responsibility as true believers is to hold on to the hope of his calling and watch God work. That's why James says in James chapter 1, verse 2, my brother, count it what? All joy when you fall into diverse temptation. Because biblical joy, folks, produces a deep confidence in the future that is based on the trust in God's purpose and power. I want you to pay special attention in James chapter 1 verse 2 to the word count. It's a Greek word egomai and it literally means to be engaged in an intellectual process. It's the idea of leading. In other words, folks, this word count has to do with a mind process. James says, I want you to get focused in your mind and I want your mind to control you in counting everything you go through as joyous. It is the ability, church, to get control of yourself. How many of you, how many of you have ever walked in despair? No hands are going up, so I'm assuming that means everybody. You've ever walked in despair?
rubbing, walking around rubbing your hands together, right? Not knowing how God's going to work this all out. What does James say? Get control of yourself. Calm down. God's at work. And don't quit right before the blessing comes. You say, Pastor, that's easy for you to say you don't know what I'm going through. Well, I might not know what you're going through, but you don't know what I'm going through. The only way, church, you and I will ever face the next battle is to trust God in this one and have joy in the Lord in this one. Because believe me, you don't want God to take you through the next battle at the level of your spirituality right now. You want to grow in your level of spirituality right now by focusing on Christ and watching Him work and watching His miracle power so that that builds endurance, as James says in chapter 1, verse 3, builds endurance in you for the next battle. The word count is an ability to get, get, get control of your mind. Wait a minute. What does the psalmist say? Why are you so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Jesus said, even be happy, even be joyous in the midst of persecution. You see, it's a matter, church, of controlling and focusing the mind on something greater than the negative circumstances that we're going through. We got to get a control of ourselves and not spend so much time focusing on the negative and focus on Christ. I like what the Bible says in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to what? These men were being beaten because they dared proclaim the gospel. And what did they do? They were told, you can leave, but you better not ever preach that Jesus ever again. And what did the Bible say happened to them? They left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 25, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God and the who? Prisoners heard them, which means what? Paul and Silas were not the risk Carlton, they were in prison. And what did they have with, what was their response? I'm not telling you, church, that this will be my response. I'm not telling you, church, that I've mastered what I'm preaching because I haven't. And praise God, I don't have to because I'm in the same trench that you're in. I fight the same battles that you fight. I have the same questions and doubts you have. All I'm telling you is what should be the reaction if we're truly focused on Christ 
And because Paul and Silas were truly focused on Christ, they could sit in prison with their arms and their feet out of joint in chains and they could sing and pray to God at midnight. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul says, as sorrowful, yet what? Boy, Paul must be weird. Sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Why? Because his focus is on Christ, not on the sorrow. As poor, yet rich. As having nothing, but what? Because it's a matter of focus, church. It's a matter of where we control our minds and where we decide to look. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you, for you're testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on what? Rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing. When our focus is right, mean that our focus is on Christ, we have an eternal perspective. And when we have that eternal perspective, the reason this sounds strange, church, when, you, when somebody preaches this or when you hear this or you read this yourself in the Bible, the reason this sounds so strange is because we spend so much time not doing it. But if we truly have that eternal perspective, we can lose everything. And we can lose every one. But we must always realize, church, we can never lose Christ. We can never lose Christ. And even in circumstances where joy seems to be impossible and where it seems that there's nothing in the world but pain and discomfort, Christian joy remains when it's focused on Christ. You can choose to focus on your despair. We can choose to focus on our problems. Or we can choose to focus on the one who is the Savior and the solver of those problems. Romans chapter 5, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8. We need to understand, folks, that there's no threat. There's no turmoil. There's no, there's no discomfort of life that can separate a Christian from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. I don't know what you're going through this morning. But I hear conversations as I weave in and out of the pew in the mornings. And I hear, and I hear the, and I hear the cry of your hearts. I talk to you on the phone and you try to put on I'm talking pastor voice. I'm not fooled. You're not tough. You're scared. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. I like what Paul says in Romans 8. 
What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Or sword? What do you mean by that? Death. As it is written, for thy sake they are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But Paul says, nay or no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Paul says, I am therefore persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When our focus, church, is on the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a certain indestructibility to Christian joy. When Christians truly walk in Christ, they will walk in joy. When we walk in the flesh, we'll walk in despair. We'll walk in fear. We'll walk in doubt. But when we walk in Christ, we walk in joy. Because what is the one greatest prevention to succumbing to false teachers? Surprisingly enough, because that's the context of what Paul is talking about. Surprisingly enough, it's not education. It's not tolerance. One of the greatest preventions of becoming entangled with false teachers and go constantly is to go constantly in the joy of the Lord. Joy, church, is what keeps you safe. Joy, church, is what keeps you sound. Joy is found in a union with Christ and only in Christ. Joy is not found in anything else that you can manufacture or anything you can contribute to it. You can spend all the money you want. You can go into all kinds of debt all you want to try to find happiness. And you may find happiness, but you will only find joy in Christ. And in that union... Because searching for joy anywhere else, church, is going to lead to disappointment. And joy in the life of the believer has a far greater impact than just emotional. Matthew Henry, the Puritan expositor, wrote this, The joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies. And put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hook. The joy of the Lord. You want to you not, you not, you not desire the things of the world? Rejoice in the Lord. Find your pleasure in the Lord. Those living in joy are resistant to the attacks that take others down. Those who walk in joy, resiliency marks their steps. And the taste of joy renders the tempter's offering bland by comparison, doesn't it? Boy, when I'm walking in the joy of the Lord, the devil has nothing to tempt me with as far as this world is concerned. Christian, listen to me. Christ should be the principal object of your joy. Christ, we rejoice. Listen to me. 
We rejoice this morning in the greatness of Christ's person, don't we? That he, being in the form of God and equal to him and able to save to the uttermost by the obedience of his death, that he ever lives as the eternal high priest and stands as the proof of our forgiveness and redemption. We rejoice that he forever stands as the one who continually makes intercession for us. We rejoice in the fact that he forever stands as the one who, is, who has all power to keep us that are committed to him. We rejoice in that he alone is the well from which we can dip into the water and find the living waters for which we will never thirst again. We rejoice that in him is the fact that Christ's justice or God's justice is satisfied, sin is finished, and everlasting righteousness has been brought in for us. We rejoice in that the resurrection brings about our justification. We rejoice in the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to us. We, re we rejoice in the fact that we have been declared righteous. We rejoice in the hope of glorification. Where Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28, 52, In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trump shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So then this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, listen church, death is swallowed up in victory. We rejoice today in Christ because death has no power over us. Oh, death wears thy sting. Oh, grave where is that victory the sting of sin is death and the strength of sin is the law but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ therefore because of what I just told you Paul says be steadfast unmovable always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord we rejoice in the hope of the eternal state when everything that is wrong will be made right. That Satan will be proven to be a defeated enemy. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, And I will put enmity between thee and, thy, and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. We rejoice in the fact that the very first promise of a victorious Savior was the defeat of Satan. We rejoice in the fact that Satan, death, and everything and everyone that is evil will be cast forever into the lake of fire. Folks, let me tell you something. We have a lot to rejoice about, don't we? We have a lot to rejoice about. We rejoice in the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. We rejoice in the fact of knowing that we will live, those of us who are born again, forever in the presence of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We rejoice in the fact that the work that God has began in us, he will continue until the day of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul said in Romans 1, uh, Philippians 1, 6. But being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And we rejoice today, church, as his people, because we are eternally secure in Jesus Christ. Man, I've got so much more I need to tell you. The time has left us. We have a lot to be joyous about, don't we? What's the distinctive mark of a true believer? 
we find pleasure in Christ. I'm not saying if you fight joy, you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that the distinctive way we show that we are Christians is when we rejoice in the Lord, when we find our pleasure in Him. Folks, God loves you. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. You've been born from above. God loves you with an everlasting love that will never change. But not only does He love you, but God has directed and decreed and ordained every step of your life. You and I don't have to worry about it, do we? But we do, don't we? Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Everybody in this worship center tonight knows Ron Hamilton by name, Patch the Pirate. If you don't know him by Ron Hamilton, you may know him by Patch the Pirate. I got cancer in his left eye. and went and shrunk into despair because the only way to remove the cancer right now was to move, remove the eye. And Ron shrunk in, into despair until one day he was reading the book of Job where Job says in Job 26 that he knows the path that I take. Because, he's, because he ordered the path, right? He ordered the path. He knows the path that I take. And when I'm tried, Job says, I'll come forth as gold. And it was almost at that moment that Ron raised up from his bed of despair, went to his room, and wrote the following words. Oh, rejoice in the Lord. He makes no mistakes. He knows the end of every path that I take. For when I am tried and purified, I'll come forth as God. Rejoice in the Lord, church. Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m. as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross, through the church, to the world, until Christ come. God bless you.